Welcome to Therapy on the Cutting Edge, a podcast for therapists who want to be up to date on the latest advancements in the field of psychotherapy. I'm your host, Dr. Keith Sutton, a psychologist in the San Francisco Bay Area and the director of the Institute for the Advancement of Psychotherapy. Today, I'll be speaking with Rona Renner, RN, who is the author of Is That Me Yelling? A Parent's Guide to Getting Your Kids to Cooperate Without Losing Your Cool. Rona had a wide range of experiences in healthcare before being trained by Kaiser Permanente to be a temperament counselor, which she has continued to use as a foundation for her work facilitating parenting groups and classes for over 30 years. She has also spoken at numerous national conferences on children's temperament, ADHD, and other parenting concerns, as well as provided consultation for medical professionals and teachers on learning differences in India and Africa. Rona is a current host of About Health on 94.1 FM KPFA and has been a guest expert on national television segments on CNN and 2020. She founded both the radio shows Childhood Matter and Nuestros Niños and was the radio host of Childhood Matters for 10 years. Let's listen to the interview. So welcome, Rona. How are you today? I'm really good, Keith. It's great to talk to you. Good. Thanks for joining. So Gosh, I, I forget exactly how we originally met, but I think it might have been because you had contacted me about interviewing me for one of the radio shows that you were doing some years ago, and we ended up talking and really, you know, hitting it off, and you came and worked with me in my practice, uh, the Institute for the Advancement of Psychotherapy as a parent coach, um, and you've done wonderful work. You've written a book for parents, and and particularly, I would, I would love to hear your story about kind of how you got to do what you're doing and Particularly, I think I'm so interested in, you know, different ways of, of getting information to people, to clients. And I think that your work has been so wonderful in the radio shows that you've done to, to get information out to folks and get it into the hand in, in kind of various ways, both through your book and through the radio. Um, so, yeah. Love to hear all I'll, that. I'll tell you about it. Well, you know, it's, it's such a surprise to me, Keith, that I'm I've been doing the work I've been doing because, you know, I'm a nurse. I, I became a nurse in 1966. Imagine that. So that was a long time ago. And, um, you know, as an RN, I, I've worked in all kinds of areas from long-term care to newborns to alcoholic unit, um, CCUs, cardiac care units. You know, as a nurse, you can do so much. Sure. And... Uh, I never imagined that I would be um, doing a radio show. I never imagined that I would write a book on parenting. So it's really interesting to see how our careers develop. I think mm -hmm. it's very important for especially people who are just starting out to realize that you, you fill your toolbox up with different um, learning, different strategies, di different wisdom. And uh, with enough time, there's a lot that you, I found that I began to understand about what was important and what I really wanted to do. Mm -hmm. But I, I'll tell you that little piece about the radio because it was very right. profound for me. I was working in pediatrics at Kaiser Permanente uh -huh. in Richmond, California. And I was really lucky to be trained as a temperament specialist. And I'll, I'll tell you more about that for sure. Sure. But I was teaching parenting classes. And this was in a community where a lot of parents were coming just because they needed help. Like all parents, we all need a lot of support. But some parents were being sent through Child Protective Services 
and they needed to have a certain number of parenting classes. So I had a very diverse group of parents from my classes and we always provided free parenting classes at okay. Kaiser and Richmond so that we could really reach um, the community of people who would benefit a lot from it. Mm -hmm. So one night I was teaching a class on the difference between discipline and punishment mm. and really looking at what discipline means in terms of teaching yeah. and trying to help people understand why harsh punishment was not healthy, was not good for kids. But I also knew that it was important for me to meet people where they were at mm -hmm. and not come across as as being too punitive myself or, or, or righteous or um, critical. So the classes were very good. They were very interactive asking people about how they were punished when they were young and how they were disciplined and what that meant to them. Mm -hmm. And at one point um, towards the end of the class, a man who didn't talk at all during the class, he raised his hand, I think, he was a man of color, perhaps Latina, I think, I can't remember exactly, mm -hmm. but he stood up and he said, now I know why I shouldn't hurt my child anymore. Mm. And when he said that, it, everyone you know, just stopped and listened and it was so authentic in terms of his understanding. And I got the chills and an angel tapped me and I had never had angels tapping me on the shoulder no. before. And the angel whispered in my ear, you have to find a way for people to hear that man. Sure. But I didn't know what that meant. Mm. I had no idea what that meant. So I went home to my husband and we were like, what does that mean? I don't know. So months went by and one day, this is the fun part, Keith. Yeah. One day I'm sitting in my pajamas listening to the O.J. Simpson trial, oh, the wow. first trial. And I usually turned that off, but I, I, I stayed and listened and they went to a break and they said, you know, the, the jury is out. We have to fill airtime. So we have this expert talking about disciplining kids. Hmm. And so I'm listening and I don't agree with what she's saying. Yeah. So I pick up my phone for the first time, I called into a radio show and I said, um, excuse me, but I don't agree with you and here's what I think. Mm -hmm. And the host of the show said, we're losing our guest. Would you take calls? Oh, wow. So there I am in my pajamas, <laughs> right? Uh <-huh>. so, <laughs> and my husband's home and he puts a tape in and for the next hour, I was the expert taking calls about kids. And the very first call was about ADHD oh, wow. and children who were, she called them monsters, you know? So I had to help her reframe all that. Yeah, and um, I listened to the tape afterwards and I realized, wow, I can do this. And that's, that's what I was supposed to do. Find a way to reach people who didn't go to parenting classes. Yeah. So it took me a long time to figure out how to get a radio show. And I did with oh, wow. the help of a lot of people. Yeah. And so that's when I started Childhood Matters. Oh, wow. And so you sit on that course after that and, and making it happen. Yeah. And, you know, it was really interesting to ask for help 
and, and, and get people to really support me in that work. And then I had the chance to bring on experts like you sure. and other doctors and therapists um, to come on each week and offer what they know and really reach people who were listening to the radio rather than coming to a class or coming to see wow. a therapist. So it was like a very um, powerful experience for me to listen to that voice and then figure out how I was going to use the media for mm -hmm. good. Oh, great. Yeah, because this was all pre-podcast and, and so on. I mean, you were putting uh, some of the recordings online and so on, you know, also when that was, uh, when did Childhood Matters start? 2002. 2002, yeah. It, it took me about eight years or so to figure out how to make it happen. Because yeah. you can't just you can't just say, you know, I want to have a radio show and have a radio show. You know, I wanted to be the anti-Dr. Laura at the time. Uh -huh. um, but, it, you know, it, it took a lot of help from people. Uh, Peter B. Collins was in the radio business, and I found other people to really support me. Uh, mm. Back then, First Five, which was the cigarette tax money, uh -huh. was just starting and they started to fund us as a nonprofit. Mm -hmm. And then we wound up paying the station. Yeah. But if, you know, if you think about it, we were reaching thousands of people at once. Mm -hmm. So it was a, a, an efficient way to do Definitely. parent education. Well, and I think too, for those that don't uh, live in California, you know, Richmond, uh, at least, I, I don't know what it is now, but in the early 2000s, it was one of the most violent areas of uh, California um, with one of the highest murder rates, um, a lot of poverty, a lot of oppression, a lot of marginalized uh, people, uh, uh, individuals of color and so on that were marginalized. And, and so the, the work at Kaiser, you know, and it sounds like you're doing the, you know, you're saying that there was a lot of referrals from Child Protective Services, as we know, oftentimes comes along with, um, uh, with poverty and, and so on. But that also, you know, then turning to a radio program to be able to really get that out there, some of that education, not just for, you know, um, yeah, uh, communities in, in, you know, financial need or so on, but just to everybody because it's so helpful. And I think that the first five money is from, I think, is that that's particular to California that taxes on cigarettes go to uh, early childhood prevention. So that's great that you were able to, to get some of that funding to put out some of those parenting tactics. Or you know, he, you're right. And you know, some of, I remember someone questioning us, one of the funders and said, how can you do a show that reaches low income families and high income families and different ethnicities? You know, how can you do that? And I remember understanding very deeply that there was a golden thread. I, I called it a golden thread that connected parents. Yeah. And that in fact, even though things were different based on your income and your culture, et cetera, there's still so many similarities with mm -hmm. what all parents face, the insecurities, the unknowns, the, the knowing, you know, the developmental stages of children, trying to figure okay. out what's the best way to help them sleep or potty train or mm -hmm. deal with their anxiety, right? And so what I saw, and I, I really pushed that, that we have to remember that parents uh, are more similar than different. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think that golden thread is that no, none of us really know what we're doing. 
we're all figuring it out. And, you know, I mean, by definition, as parents, we're learning and we're figuring this out. Um, and so, you know, definitely, I think there's that, that angst and wanting to know and needing information and all these different challenges that come up. Now, can you talk a little bit about, you know, I, I think temperament is so important. That's something that I really learned more in depth in, in knowing you. And also I, I got my temperament assessments when I, my kids were at Kaiser and we even talked about them. Can you talk about temperaments and kind of the importance of that? Because I think that's something that um, falls under the radar. Yes, that's right. It does fall under the radar. And, you know, I wished I had known about temperament. I have four kids and five grandkids. And I didn't learn about temperament until, you know, most of my kids were grown. And I was very fortunate. I, working at Kaiser in Richmond, um, Dr. Stella Chess and Alexander Thomas were our two, were, they're both uh, deceased, but they were two pioneers in the area of temperament. And they brought their information uh, to Dr. James Cameron and his team. And, they put out the word and they, they said to all the different Kaiser hospitals in the Northern uh, Bay area, they said, you know, who wants to be trained as a temperament specialist? And I had no idea what that meant, but mm -hmm. I had been doing parenting classes. So my uh, chief of pediatrics sent me to learn about temperament. And it was a piece of the puzzle that had been missing for me yeah. in terms of understanding my children. And it's the piece of the puzzle about how we come into the world differently that we're not all the same, that we're not a blank slate, and that children come in with uh, inborn traits of temperament, and that as parents, the more we can understand the individual differences of our children, the better off we are in figuring out how to be proactive, how to respond, how to discipline, how to help them be comfortable in the world. Yeah. And so, you know, I was trained to do um, this temperament assessment that you could do online uh, mm -hmm. through an organization called Preventivance, P-R-E-V-E-N-T-I-V-E-O-Z.org. Mm -hmm. um, it still exists. You can still do uh, an assessment for kids ages four months to five years mm -hmm. at the Preventivance. But anyway, we were trained. And at first, it was just an individual appointment where I would meet with the parent go over the results of this questionnaire. Yeah. And for an hour, I'd have a whole hour to talk with them about whatever challenges they were having. And in the pediatric department, the pediatricians were so happy to have a referral place, you know, some place to refer these parents to because they didn't have enough time to yeah. talk about the sleep issues or potty training or, or whatever they needed. So I would look at the type of child and also look at the parent's temperament. And mm -hmm. I think that's a key piece that uh, Dr. Chess and Thomas talked about is the goodness of fit between your temperament and your child's. And you know, as a parent um, of more than one child, that yeah. it's gonna be different, right? Definitely. Based on your child. So for instance, if you're very fast adapting and your child is more of a natural planner and slow adapting, mm -hmm. good chance you're gonna get impatient on a regular basis, right? If your child is um, very loud and uh, enthusiastic and boisterous mm -hmm. and you're sensitive and maybe slow to warm up, 
that child is going to be irritating to you. Yeah, push a lot of those buttons. Push a lot of those buttons. And so we started to do these uh, individual appointments and then Dr. Uh, Jim Cameron and I and a few other people decided that this would be wonderful material to do in a group setting. Mm. So um, Helen Neville and Jan Crystal and I wrote a manual. It was the first um, temperament-based parenting manual for Kaiser. Mm -hmm. And we started to do classes based mm -hmm. on this material. And what was so powerful about that, Keith, was that parents saw they weren't alone. Mm -hmm. And they really got to see that, oh, I have a spirited child, which was yeah. a term that Mary Kursinka, um put out into the world, calling these children spirited. And these were the kids who were more, you know, mm -hmm. more intense, more right. active, more sensitive. And parents would see that they weren't alone and that they, it, they weren't bad parents. Mm -hmm. It was just that they needed to understand more about what was going on for this child. And you know, as a therapist working with families for so long now that parents do the best they can. They love wow. their kids and they really wanna do well, mm -hmm. but often are missing the information they need to manage not only their child's behavior, but their own reactions. Yeah. Yeah, and they, it makes me think about too, I know the Callens research at Berkeley looking at the transition from the couple to having a first child, what they found in, in just by having groups with parents, that parents oftentimes felt much better because they realized uh, uh, they use the term, we're all in the same soup. We're all in the same kind of, you know, crazy transition here and nobody's getting sleep and so on. And so it sounds like similar with the temperament kind of realizing like, oh, okay, this isn't just our microcosm of our family over here that others' families have this experience also. Because I think, yeah, the biggest piece of the temperament that I, I stands out to me is that not all kids are one way. Right. And sometimes when parents feel like my kid's not the way they're supposed to be, they can either get very frustrated at the kid or they can get very upset at themselves and feel like they're failing at the job of parenting. And so kind of understanding that, that there's different kids that need different things and really, really learning how to work with that. Exactly. And, you know, Kaiser found that just by doing the temperament assessment online, that that in itself was an intervention. Mm -hmm. That even if you didn't meet with a temperament counselor, um, what happened was you did this 70 questions or so, and it made you become more mindful of who your child is and just becoming more mindful. Oh, right. Little, you know, James is, is really shy. Slow to warm up is the term yeah. you use, slow to warm up. No wonder he doesn't want to go to the party or the swimming class. I have to remember that he needs time to get comfortable. Yeah. And that pushing him won't help. It will just make things worse. So just doing the questionnaire was an intervention of itself. Mm. And, and the other message I think for parents that I've seen over the years, um, I've been doing this temperament work since 1991. So it's a long time. And what yeah. I saw was that behavior has meaning, you know, so children's behavior has meaning. And if we could help parents understand that 
you know, we're looking at temperament, we're looking at daily life experience, we're looking at other factors that influence their behavior, but that developing that compassion that the behavior has meaning and now we have to sort of figure out what this individual child needs mm-hmm. while also setting limits and offering positive discipline. It, yeah. It's not about accepting your child and then letting them run around the restaurant. You know, <laughs> sure. it's also knowing I have an active child so I'm not gonna take them to that fancy restaurant. Yeah. And, and if I do, take them somewhere I'm going to make sure and have some paper and crayons or toys Yeah, and and, and preparing ahead. How to accommodate the situation to be able to, uh, you know, kind of for, for, for the most success. It's really helped me with my own kids. And even as my children are adults, I see how my temperament wasn't always a good fit with some of my kids. Mm. You know, whether it was that I was too intense or too loud, whatever it was, that I've really come to see that it help it helps you not take everything so personally. Uh-huh. It's not about I like you, I don't like you. It's more about we can rub each other the wrong way sometimes. Mm-hmm. And now that I'm taking care of my two-year-old grandson, I I get a whole new lesson on looking at temperament and really honoring those individual differences in people. Definitely. Yeah, and I oftentimes find I do a lot of work, as you know, with ADHD and also uh, what's called oppositional defiant disorder. And oftentimes you, that, that goodness of fit issue comes up a lot. Like say you've got a kid who's very hyper and active and energetic, and you've got a parent who maybe is a little bit more on the slower to warm up side or on the little bit more of kind of, you know, sensitive to loud noises or so on. And then, you know, that understanding of how those are clashing is so important. Or you've got a kid who's kind of more on the oppositional who needs a really clear structure, really kind of consistency and so on. And you've got a parent who's a little bit more freeform and kind of, you know, figuring things out as they go along and and so on. Sometimes the structure and they're they're very, very flexible. So it kind of ends up not being that that great fit or a parent that's a little bit more or less linear and a a kid who's on the autism spectrum who needs things very concrete. And that kind of idea of really understanding those differences. And it's not, it's no, there's no aspect of blame. It's just an aspect of understanding. Exactly. Match up. That's right. And, you know, one of the things I like about the temperament model is it's considered a wide range of normal. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's this n- normality to it. It's, it's like I have a lot of respect for therapists and for diagnoses and how important that is. But I, I really like talking to parents about this wide range of normal yeah. so that we don't too quickly pathologize a child's behavior. And part of my job when I was at Kaiser that I loved is trying to really know when to refer. So, Uh you know, we'd look through that lens of temperament first Mm -hmm. to really get a sense of if if it's about the fit, um, what else is going on with the child. I remember one child really just had sleep apnea and it wasn't Mm -hmm. anything else, you know, like really looking at that and then seeing when to refer. And that was one of the questions I, I did a lot of work with ADHD when I was at Kaiser with uh, parents teaching the parenting class. And people would always say, and this is an interesting thing I'm sure you deal with every day, 
how do you know when my child is just an active, um, sort of impulsive, uh, perceptive, curious little uh. guy or girl and um, versus having a neurobiological disorder. And, you know, I came to understand that I could say, let's look at where the impairment is. Mm -hmm. You know, can this child sit still at all in the classroom and learn? Can this child have a friend or two? You know, really let's look at what's successful, what's not successful, and then go from there. And, and I, I would imagine you grapple with that a lot, you know, with, yeah. is this about temperament or is this about something more? Yeah, and particularly too with a, particularly for ADHD, you know, you're looking at is, do they have those six out of nine symptoms in multiple settings? Cause that's what puts them at the 93rd percentile or one and a half standard deviations above the mean to kind of to say like, okay, this is something significantly different. And as you're saying too, and does it also bring in impairment, social impairment, school impairment, family impairment, or whatever it might be going on there? And kind of looking at that, because yeah, you can have a kid that's more energetic or more outgoing, but they can kind of pull it together too and kind of, you know, sit and go through the classroom and, and pay attention or so on. But then, you know, when they're left out on the recess field all over the place. But I think that that's, that's a, a big piece of kind of where is it just differences in character and temperament and where is it differences in, um, yeah, when, when it's something that's so significant that it requires some sort of intervention. Um, you know, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your book. Um, uh, and I, I, I'm gonna, help me if I butcher the title. It's, uh, is that me yelling? Oh, you've got that, perfect, right there. Is that me yelling? Parent's Guide to Getting Your Kids to Cooperate Without Losing Your Cool. Um, tell me about that, because I know that you were working on that book when we were working together and published uh, after and so on. And yeah, just can you talk a little bit about, you know, what drove you to, to write a book and what what message were you trying to get across in, in that? Uh, and there's so many different parenting kind of stuff out there. Thanks, Keith, uh, for that question. And, you know, I was doing a lot. I was teaching um, parenting classes. I was doing the radio show. And then I left Kaiser. And I, once the radio show ended, we ran out of money. The, 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 we had the uh, economic downturn. Mm -hmm, yeah. <laughs> so we had to uh, just let go. And I thought, what do I want to do here? And I realized there were so many parenting books that I had put off the idea of writing. But there were some factors. One was, um, you know, I have mild dyslexia. And so I had always just wanted to see if I could write a book. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's I, I, I'm the kind of person who doesn't read for pleasure. You know, I read when I need to read and I can read. I'm a slow reader and I can write. And but it's not something that's easy for me. So I had that in the back of my mind. And then I realized that when parents came to see me for temperament counseling, we would talk about the kid's temperament and we would talk about the parent's temperament. And often we would go to the subject of yelling mm -hmm. because parents would say to me, you know, I'm just yelling too much. I'm yelling all the time or I feel frustrated all the time. My yeah. kids are getting under my skin, you know, and this is before the pandemic, right? This, uh, yeah. this was back in um, the early, so I wrote the book in 2013. Mm -hmm. And so over and over again, I heard those themes of 
how do I stop yelling? I don't want to hit my child. And, and in some ways, yelling became the new hitting. Um, mm-hmm. You know, parents didn't want to hit, but yeah. they were getting so frustrated. And so I just sat and, you know, did an outline of what I thought was important. And I realized that I wanted to talk about mindfulness, but I didn't want to call it mindfulness because I wanted the book to reach people who would not pick up a book on mindfulness, even though it's a great topic. Uh, I wanted people to say, oh yeah, that was me yelling. Mm -hmm. To bring in the idea of reducing shame, reducing blame, and saying, how can I observe myself? You know, not just about how can I fix my kid and, and make my kid a better kid, right? Oh. It's like, how do I observe myself as a parent, see what my triggers are, figure out how to come back to myself and calm myself mm-hmm. and offer my child what they need. And, you know, it's work that I did over the years in learning how to yell less. Yeah. And it's also what I learned from Dr. Matthew McKay. I don't know if you know Matthew McKay. Oh yeah, of course, Matt McKay, who's uh, big in CBT, author of numerous books. Um, yeah, New Harbinger Foundation, or I mean, New Harbinger Publishing. Yeah, so he was a friend of mine and he and I wound up doing a show on 2020 together. Mm. Um, he invited me to help him find parents and they put microphones in people's homes and cameras and they um, tape people yelling at their kids. Mm. And it was really interesting again, because these were good parents, decent parents who even they knew the camera was in their home. They still lost it. Right. So, I mean, one of the interventions I often tell parents is imagine that a 2020 camera is in your home Mm -hmm. and just try and think about what will they see when you're disciplining your child. So I thought about it and I realized that temperament was a big piece. So there's a whole chapter on temperament Uh so that you're going to yell less if you realize what your intense child needs, if you know that your child's intense and if you start yelling at them, you're only going to escalate things, right? And throw fuel on the fire. So it's looking at temperament, but it's also looking at those triggers. And and again, cognitive behavioral therapy is, is just what I'm talking about here is how do I breathe, calm myself, notice my thoughts, change them. My kid is not a brat. My kid is just a Mm two-year-old. How do I then decide what my child needs? And then also look at, become empathetic to what's going on with them. So, you know, I developed what I called ABCDE, right? uh, Of not yelling, ask what I'm feeling, breathe, calm yourself, decide what your child needs and put yourself in your child's shoes and mm-hmm. empathize. empathize yeah. And what I found in writing the book was that there's not enough message, messaging around how we have to work on ourselves in order to be the parent we wanna be. Because yeah. so many of us also have a background of trauma. Mm-hmm. We get tra- triggered easily. And we love our children, but they know how, again, to get under our skin, to press those buttons. 
And if we don't understand more about ourselves, we're just going to pass on that trauma or we're gonna pass on, you know, most of the time we evolve, I think each generation, if they do the work, things get better. Yeah. Right, do you agree with that? I think so. I mean, you know, I mean, things were very different around, yeah, physical punishment and so on so many years ago. Um, yeah. So, you know, I found that the book was really well received and um, parents, I, I gave lots of talks and I still do. And yep. parents appreciated the fact that I told stories about how I yelled. Mm -hmm. I even admitted to hitting my son once. He, he allowed me to put that in the book. He said, mom, why don't you write more details about it? I said, no, no, just a little mention. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Here. We want to put so much out there. Yeah. Right. Um, and it, um, it sold really well. It's still selling really well in China. Oh, wow which is really interesting to me. It's in five different languages, mm -hmm. um, but it's not available except a used version oh. here in the U.S. or Kindle. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that this piece that you're talking about is the parents and being in tune to their own reaction is so important because I think that, you know, oftentimes, like the most control we have is over ourselves. And that oftentimes, you know, they talk about that kind of idea of that, like we need to kind of regulate first to then be able to regulate the kids. Or sometimes I talk about with parents, it's like, we need to be that rock in the ocean where the waves hit up against rather than another wave just kind of smashing into it and kind of whirling about. Um, but it's hard because, you know, oftentimes the focus is on the kids and changing their behavior and the frustration with them not doing what they should do. And then oftentimes our frustration ends up being, well, they weren't doing that. So therefore I got frustrated. And, and that's yeah. right. And, you know, I think about a, a parent, for instance, who's a good example of the stress parents are under. And I okay. think because of the stress, um, we don't have that, you know, good frontal lobe working always. Uh -huh. So like, you know, this wonderful mother was yelling at her sons every morning because they weren't getting their shoes on and they were futzing around and playing. And, you know, it was this simple discussion I had with her about how about putting the shoes by the front door mm -hmm. and how about getting up 15 minutes earlier, even though you need your sleep, but wow. get up 15 minutes earlier, get everything ready, sit down on the floor with the kids when they're playing, talk to them about what's gonna happen next. Mm -hmm. and have them put their shoes on as they go out the door. And it was amazing. She was a really smart woman and um, good mom. And she said, just that simple strategy reduced that morning yelling. And I think what happens, Keith, is when parents start the morning off stressed and yelling and the kids are stressed, it, it really sets a tone for the day for everyone. Yeah. And it's hard on the kids and mm -hmm. it's equally hard on the parents. And, you know, when oftentimes with parents too, when I'm, I'm meeting with them, kids and the parents, you know, oftentimes they say like, and it sounds like you don't want to be yelling. They're like, no, I don't want to be yelling. I don't want to be nagging. Like that's the last thing that they want to be doing. Um, but yeah, I think that, you know, I, I think that another thing is just having kids is hard and having so much to do. And especially, you know, in our world and, 
you know, many, most families both working and full time. And it's like, there's such little time that you need to, you need to get out that door to get to work on time and drop the kids off. You only have so much time to do dinner and homework and get the kids to bed and try and do laundry and all these things and get the sleep. And so sometimes it, for so many parents, it's just so it's overwhelming. And it's, it overwhelming. Is. And it's not set up. It, it, we don't have a parent friendly society. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as we can see from the pandemic, right. It's like, oh my gosh, everybody just had to survive, you know, over this last year and a half, because when childcare got shut down, it was like, how, how are you going to work and take care of the kids and, you know, do, do all these things at the same time. And, and you couldn't even get help because of the risks of COVID and such. Yeah. It's not set up the way it needs to be. And many parents I worked with didn't have relatives nearby to help out. You know, my, some of my kids are here, some are not, but what a difference it makes when you have grandparents around to drop the kids off, you know, oh, sometimes yeah. and help out. And a lot of people don't have that. Mm -hmm. um, and, and what happens is all that pressure gets passed on yeah. to the kids. And then, you know, there, there's this sort of vicious cycle that happens then, you know, siblings are fighting more and then there's sleep problems mm -hmm. and often eating becomes a hassle. And um, I, I think that's, again, when I think as a parent, you have to step back. You know, one of the things I would help people with is to look at a problem behavior. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's look at something that's really bugging you. Like my, you know, kid is whining all the time or yeah. you know, something like that. And stop and think about their temperament you know, maybe they're slow to warm up, maybe they're easily frustrated, sensitive, whatever part seems to fit. And then you have to think about when does it happen? Mm -hmm. Who does it happen with? Because sometimes it only happens with one parent and not yeah, the other. Yeah. Um, what time of day does it happen? And then what makes it worse? And what makes it better? Mm -hmm. And that, that whole way of being a detective. Yeah is is a really helpful thing because parents know their kids better than you or i yeah, exactly. and so giving them the tool of evaluating a behavior and and you know sometimes parents would see oh my god it only happens at 11 o'clock when my child's hungry mm -hmm. or it only happens with mom somehow dad doesn't get this whining you know yeah. <laughs> Really trying to parse apart all those different pieces that play into the context and the behavioral analysis of what happens before or after. And I think that, like you're saying, really partnering with the parents and collaborating with them to understand, because really they're the expert on their family, that we may have some ideas and so on, but they're really in it and can, can be able to look at all those pieces. But sometimes we need the time and space just to even like sort those out. Right. And, you know, another piece, Keith, that I think you know a lot about, too, is developing self-compassion. Mm -hmm. Because I know for me, I came as I started to observe more, you know, in writing this book, I talk a lot about self-observation, which oh. is another way to say mindfulness. If you don't add in the self-compassion piece, I find that I and other people are more likely to shut down what we're looking at and, mm -hmm. and, and, and somehow not, not being compassionate towards myself makes it less likely I'm gonna see my mistakes. 
Yeah. Because, you know, a lot of us have a lot of judgment of ourselves and we make a lot of mistakes and we don't want to see that because it's that part of like, oh, wow, I did that. That was, you know, that was hurtful to my child. And so I think the work of like Kristen Neff and um, there's so many people, Shauna Solomon, is that her name? Shauna? Oh, someone else, you know, Mm -hmm. there are a lot of people who have written books on this, but the idea of realizing that if a friend came to you and said, oh my God, I yelled at my teenager and she stormed out of the house and now I feel like a terrible mother. If you would say, come have a cup of tea, let's talk about it. You probably did the best you could. She'll be back. You'll make up, you know, like that attitude of understanding the universality of mistakes and also knowing that you're you're working hard to be a good parent Mm -hmm. as best you can well yeah that compassion you know and kind of i think you might be like also talking about like compassion focused cbt you know that aspect of really kind of building that up because it's hard to have compassion for your kids if you can't also have compassion for yourself and it's hard to allow yourself to have mistakes and address those mistakes and have kind of that resiliency mindset of, okay, this mistake happened. What can I do to deal with that in the future? Versus I, I think about it as sometimes going into a shame spiral of like feeling bad that you messed up, but then not wanting to look at it. And then sometimes continuing to make more not great choices for yourself because you're not wanting to deal with the other stuff and it just kind of snowballing. But yeah, that aspect of that, and especially with parenting in a job when there's, there's, it's so hard to be perfect. It's impossible to be perfect. It's I mean, impossible. nothing you can be perfect, but you're going to make probably more mistakes in the area of parenting than yes. anything else in your in your life. And so it's yes. kind of this good enough parenting aspect is really important to have compassion to be able to stay present and be able to kind of shift behavior of oneself and also be compassionate of the kids and, and being understanding of those contexts. Yeah. Um, I think so. And I think, you know, Daniel Siegel, Dr. Daniel Siegel talks a lot about connection. Yeah. Um, connection before correction. Co- connection. Yeah. What'd you say? Uh, connection before correction. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that's another key thing when you were talking about compassion, I realized that that came to my mind is that I, I noticed with my two-year-old grandson, if he does something that he's not supposed to do and he's trying out and testing, you know, I just get down close to him Mm -hmm. and I need to talk to him and say, you know, look, we don't throw the milk on the floor and here's what we do instead. Go get the washcloth, wipe it up. But that connection means so much to him. Mm -hmm. You know, I could see it with a two-year-old and it's true for all ages, you know, through teenagers that that connection is a way to say, I care about you and therefore I'm going to parent you and teach you kind of the things you need to know to be a person in this world. Definitely. Yeah. Cause that caring is the most important part to take in that rest, the rest of that piece, which with the oppositional defiant type situations, we oftentimes we're talking about, we're working towards a benevolent authority. Not only are the parents setting limits and creating structure, but also that the, they, the kids, they understand the kids and the kids feel that they understand them. So even if the parents are making choices that the kids are unhappy about, at least they feel like the parents are holding in their heart what the kids want or need. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I want to talk more about the your radio work and just you know um, I guess hear a little bit more about the uh, your place uh, you're you're seeing the place for podcasts and radio and so on and reaching you know a wider audience of folks and also I mean you know that that I, I was wondering too as you were mentioning about the dyslexia uh, mild dyslexia and not reading as much and so on. One of the reasons that launched me into doing this podcast is just being so busy and I'm like, I want to read so many books and learn all, maybe I'll just interview folks and then record that and put that out and that way I can take it in through the interview and the conversation. So, I mean, I'm also interested in what you are seeing um, in the field and what, you know, has been interesting to you, exciting, or what have any kind of noticing any trends or directions that, that things have been going and the folks that you've been interviewing of late. So um, either one of those topics, yeah. So, you know, currently I volunteer at KPFA mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, back in the day I got paid to do radio, which was very yeah. exciting. It was actually work, but um, I volunteer as the host of About Health. And on that show, I get to interview people on any topic related to wellness, well-being, health and well-being, you know, mostly for an audience of older adults, not, not mm-hmm. completely, but mm-hmm. it's for very, um, it's not for parents particularly. Yeah, it's it's sure. for, so, you know, I recently did one on uh, psilocybin assisted psychotherapy. I might do it on diabetes, uh, on mental health, physical health and, I realized that radio still has a place where, mm-hmm. you know, podcasts have taken over and it's, it's a wonderful thing, but radio still has a place in the world. I, I kept thinking 10 years ago that it was just going to go away, mm-hmm. um, but no, it's here to stay. It's changed a lot, but it's here to stay. And KPFA is, you know, one of the only places that's just listener sponsorship which is a very hard model. They don't take any corporate money, um, but they hold that place on the dial that is not beholden to anyone, which is really great. What I've noticed in relationship to podcasts is that my, you know, my kids keep sending me podcasts to listen to because mm. that is more of their world. And I find it's fabulous to, while I'm cooking, you know, and, and chopping vegetables that I don't have to turn on the radio and just wonder what's on, you know, are they talking about, um, you know, politics again? Are they talking about something that I'm totally uninterested in? So the beauty of podcasts is that I can listen to something on mental health. I can listen to something, um, that's a a book on tape also as well. And it, it's, it's a way for people to get information to other people without having them sitting and reading. So there's, there are a lot of people who still love reading books mm-hmm. and I think it's fabulous. I have a husband who reads all the time, but more and more people don't have time for that. Mm-hmm. And so they are turning to podcasts and you get to decide you know, what you're interested in, what other people are interested in, and it reaches a diverse audience. Mm -hmm. And that's the beauty of it. And, you know, what's interesting too, Keith, is people like yourself or, um, uh, you know, Brene Brown or other people who originally were not in the, in the field of, you know, doing radio or podcasts have found an outlet. 
just like you said, mm -hmm. to pass on their information. And that's what I see. And that's what I loved about radio. I, I realized I had learned a lot and I wanted to pass that on as part of my legacy. Yeah. Um, and I also learn by the people I interview, oh, as I know you do. Oh, definitely. Right. So it's a, it, I think it's really taken off and it's an overload also. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. sometimes I find myself thinking, oh my God, what am I gonna listen to? There's <laughs> so much, right? There's so much I'm interested in. Um, how did you decide to do the podcast? Just because you wanted to get more information out there? You know, yeah. I mean, I've I've uh, thought of this for many many years, and I had uh, I listened to a lot a lot of podcasts, and um, I I was interviewed uh, by uh, Dr. David Van Nuys, um, uh, MentalHealth.net uh, podcast some years ago, and I used to love that and listen to it. I mean, I, I I'm a you know I love learning when. For psychologists, you need to get 36 hours of continuing education every two years. And when I first got licensed, the first time I got my renewal, I actually added it all up and I had 320 hours of continuing education from all the workshops <laughs> I've gone to. And so I just, you know, especially since kids, you know, that 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 number has gone way down. But um, you know, running and listening to podcasts or, you know, having conversations. And that's part of why my group practice institute, as you were in, you know, was about having conversations and keeping each other up to date and learning and so on. And so um, yeah, I just thought it would be great to, you know, there was so many, so many things I was interested in. And I was thinking, oh, it'd be great to have a conversation, record it and put it out there for others. And particularly too, you know, there's uh, the areas of, of interest that I have in working with families and couples and working systemically and CBT and EMDR and evidence-based and so on and kind of bringing that out there. But I think too that like, you know, just both that, you know, for professionals as well as for clients, you know, multiple ways of getting information out there. Um, you know, I've, uh, there's been, you know, the podcasts of course are really big um, books of course. Um, you know, that there's also a lot of more online programs, um, you know, there's, I'm doing the, myself personally, the Noom app, which is kind of a uh, eating and exercise kind of app. And just, it's a really clever way of providing, and it's, it's a cognitive behavioral therapy based one, but a clever way of just getting information to, to folks and, and mental health information to, and putting it in their hands. Because I think that, and, and none of the people that I've interviewed you know, have really been interested in how do we help get this into more folks' hands? You know, it's good if they can come in and meet with us weekly or so on and, you know, pay for that or, but, but also, you know, how can, how can we get this out for more folks? And I love that, you know, Oprah's doing the, the uh, TV show that she's been doing with Prince Harry and so on and, and getting information out on um, Brene Brown's Netflix specials. Like there's, it's great that it's it's getting more and more into the culture and being more and more available and, uh, and so on. Well, you know, part of it is that our medical health system doesn't do enough mm -hmm. in regard to mental health, especially, but health education in general. Yeah. You know, Kaiser's pretty good about health education, but we also know that there's problems with access to mental health care, yeah. not only there, but in, in most health systems. And so the podcasts are a way to give people more information so they can be have more agency in mm -hmm. terms of their own health. Um, again, and mental health as well as physical health, and it's all connected anyway. So, um, you know, there's, there, you, you get 
more information, more support, more agency, and we need it because these other systems don't provide it. And then there's the inequities in terms of who can get access mm -hmm. to mental health care, yeah. uh, who can afford it. And, and I know, you know, with your organization, you have worked to try and, and make, um, you know, one arm of your work so that people who are lower income can also access. Yeah, for our nonprofit. Right, yeah. but it's really hard. And so there's a necessity for it. And, you know, doing the radio show, doing about health is really interesting because I do a call-in show. Mm -hmm. And it, it's not easy, it's challenging because, yeah. um, you know, I, I have to keep in mind that the listeners are listening. And so I can't, I, I can't talk to one person for too long, yeah. um, you know, and we're not diagnosing over the air. Sure. And so it has to stay sort of fresh and interesting, but it gives people a chance to ask a question that they either haven't asked the doctor or embarrassed to ask their doctor or think it's not important enough, whatever it is. And I, I believe deeply in, um, in communicating with people and trying mm -hmm. to help people ask those questions so they can take care of their own health mm -hmm. the best they can. And wow. I think podcasts and also radio, there's, there's not a lot of call-in shows, so we are mm -hmm. kind of unique in that way. Um, are wonderful avenues for that. Well, it's a nice way to engage with the information, right? Because also, you know, it's it creates enough of the novelty of you don't know what's going to come in from a phone call. So as a listener, even if you're not calling in, hearing these different folks, and I know there was lots of, you know, there was a lot of sex education with Dr. Drew's love lines and so on many years ago, and uh, with your health program and so on. And I think that was something that was good because it was engaging to engage people to want to listen and at the same time like you're saying making it accessible for everybody because it's on the radio it's free it's accessible even yes. if you don't have a computer even if you don't have um you know uh whatever downloadable you know uh, whatever minutes or so on on your phone or whatever it might be so, you know, I, I really appreciate all the work that you've done and i'm so appreciative of getting you know really that taking it from the work you were doing at Kaiser and, you know, kind of then, you know, bringing that to, to families and the classes and then even bringing that out and in, in, into the broader world with uh, the radio show. Cause I think that's, again, it's such a, so important and I've, I've loved your vision and it was so nice to hear your story of, of really kind of that calling to do this work and really setting on that path and, and achieving that. Um, so I, I thank you so much for taking the time today and talking about that with us all today. You're very welcome, Keith. And, um, you know, the motto I have at the end of my book is uh, world peace begins at home. Mm -hmm. So if we can all do our best to the best of our ability to have connection and peace at home, then it has a ripple effect. And um, hopefully we can make a difference in the world. Wonderful. Well, Thank you definitely you. are. Thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. Take care. Great to see you. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us. If you're wanting to use this podcast to earn continuing education credits, please go to our website at therapyonthecuttingedge.com. Our podcast is brought to you by the Institute for the Advancement of Psychotherapy, providing in-person and remote therapy in the San Francisco Bay Area. 
IAP provides screening for licensed clinicians through our in-person and online programs, as well as our treatment for children, adolescents, families, couples, and individual adults. For more information, go to sfiap.com or call 415-617-5932. Also, we really appreciate feedback. And if you have something you're interested in, something that's on the cutting edge of the field of therapy and think clinicians should know about it, send us an email or call us. We're always looking for the advancements in the field of psychotherapy to help in creating lasting changes for our clients.